Hey, this is Travis Bennett, the pastor here at Arena of Life Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I pray this builds your faith, encourages you, and brings you to newer levels in Christ. Enjoy the message. Amen. Well, go ahead and take a seat. Uh, If it's not on your deal there, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 12. How many of y'all are excited about this topic of the big six? All right, it's fundamental. How many of y'all learned something last week? All right. All right, six of you. Praise God. Well, maybe 13 of you will leave here tonight uh, having faith uh, toward God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. It's time to grow up. Look at your neighbor and say, it's time to grow up. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now we go to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1. This is the big topic here. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on. Look at your neighbor again and say, let's go on. Let's go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God of the doctrine of baptisms and of the laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Last week we talked about Repentance. And if you didn't get the paperwork on that, you can get it back here. But repentance, there's a reason why that that was the very first topic. And we talked about that last week. It's important that we understand repentance. Amen? But tonight we're going to talk about uh, faith toward God. And before I do, I just want to kind of give you uh, something here. I've, I've read about this. In fact, I had coffee with a guy this last week. And he's been to Egypt several times. He's been all over the world. He's been to he's been to Israel several times, and uh, John Kohler. You remember John Kohler? You remember John Kohler? Anyways, he's been all over, all over the place. And uh, he, uh, we were talking about Egypt, and I've heard this before, but there are some tombs there called the Valley of the Kings. And on the wall is a picture of some scales, and on one side is a heart, and on the other side of the scale is a feather. And tradition has it from how many thousands of years this this particular image is um, um, the heart represents people's sins and the feather represents people's good works in life and if the, the heart outweighs the feathers then your eternity could be damned and so with that in mind uh, suppose you were to die today and you stood at the door of heaven and God asked you uh, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And I believe there's people uh, all over, you may not be in this room, but I believe there's people out there that say this, I've lived a good life, right? Or I've been sincere and I never lied. I've uh, done nice things for people. I never hurt anyone. I gave to the poor. Uh, I've helped others and, and was never selfish. I worked very hard in life. I've been a good parent and I was good to my parents. I was a fantastic church member. I took communion on a, on a regular basis. I gave in the tithes and offerings. And all of these things are great. We're going to talk about some of these things tonight. But they don't save you. Amen? If any of these uh, items 
is your basis for believing that God will allow you to enter heaven, you need to understand with all sincerity that none of these will get you there. The Bible says that people who trust in anything other than Christ will go to hell after death. We read this in John 3, 36. You don't have this on here. This is just some commentary that I added. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. You see that? But the wrath of God abides on him. In John 5, 28, it says, Do not marvel at this, for their hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. In John 14, 6, it says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father except through me. It doesn't say it except if you're a good church member or except if you've given to the poor. It says you only come to the Father through Him. Amen? In Acts 4, 12, he says, Nor is their salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. One more scripture here in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8 and 9. It says, In flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So let's leave here tonight without a shadow of a doubt the simple truth of what is required of any person to gain heaven and shun hell. You ready? Faith toward God, what does it mean? This particular doctrine may sound like something you already have an understanding of. You may think, oh, I already understand everything about faith. But what does this phrase, faith faith toward God, really refer to? It's a foundational truth that is exactly... Actually, very strategic to your faith. And it's not quite as simple as it seems. First, you have to remember that the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew believers who had been saved out of Judaism. In fact, if you read the book of Hebrews, you can see that these are people that are still living under the law. I mean, you all know we've been set free from the curse of the law. Amen? So these people being raised in Judaism, they had learned to trust in all kinds of natural things for their salvation. They trusted in the law. They trusted in circumcision, temple sacrifice, temple taxes, traditions in their Jewish culture. They trusted in all kinds of religious works to have salvation. This was the belief system that these Hebrews believers had trusted in for as long as they could remember before they came to Christ. But our works do not save us. This is why the Holy Spirit presented this doctrine of faith toward God as a truth that is absolutely foundational to our life in Christ. The phrase in Greek is pistios epitheon, which includes the Greek words pistis and epitheon. The word pistis is a Greek word for faith and actually describes faith that is being projected. Projected. I don't know about you, but I want a, a faith that is moving forward. Amen. This is not a static faith that just sits still or relying on itself. This is a faith that is projected somewhere else. And at its point of arrival, the one to whom faith is projected causes it to move forward. The other Greek word in this phrase is epitheon. It's a compound word. It includes the word epi, which means upon, and the word theos, which is the Greek word for God. When all of these meanings are combined to form the Greek word pistios, 
epithion. It actually means a faith that is projecting forward and is fully and wholly focused on God and not on anything else. I don't know about you, but I want that kind of faith. I don't trust in chariots. Men trust in chariots, right? I'm going to trust in God. The, this faith goes forward for the very reason that God is its objective. So this phrase, pistios, epitheon, actually means a faith projecting toward God alone. That is a faith that leans upon God, wholly trusts in God, and does not trust in anything else other than God. It is the picture of complete trust that allows no room for any self-reliance whatsoever. This is a faith that does not in any form rely on what the Bible calls dead works. Or as we saw last week, works that are dead or works that do not lead to life. In particular, we're talking about works that do not lead to eternal life. And Paul warns us about this. As the Bible tells us, anything a person trusts in besides Christ is a dead work. Amen? And it's important to understand that this issue of dead works is a very serious matter. We see this in Numbers, where God forbade his people to touch any dead thing. Numbers 9, 10 here. <clears throat> he said, speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If any man of you or of your posterity shall be unclean by reason of a dead body or be in a journey afar off, yet ye shall keep the Passover unto the Lord. So keep that in mind as we discuss the issue of dead works. Dead works are something we're not even supposed to touch. We're not supposed to go near or have contact with dead works lest we become contaminated by them. And I've met many people that have. The Apostle Paul even wrote about this subject in Colossians 2 verse 21. It says, touch not, taste not, handle not. It was the equivalent of saying, don't even go near trusting in these things. The Holy Spirit is telling us in this verse, don't touch dead works. Don't trust in dead works. Don't turn to dead works. You should have no confidence in any work of the flesh. We are not to trust in our works for salvation. And Hebrews 6.1 plainly says we are to have a faith that is projecting forward. We have to release our faith, but not based on our actions or our works. But we are to release our faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Of course... Good works are always healthy and beneficial in a temporal sense for this life. It's good, to help. it's good to help other people. And when we get saved, we will be promoted. We will be prompted to do good works. And Hebrews 6, 9 talks about things that accompany salvation. And good works are those things that accompany salvation. We see this in verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. But when we don't do good works in order to get saved, we do good works because we are saved. Let me say that again. But we don't do good works in order to get saved, but we, we do good works because we are saved. It's a natural byproduct of salvation to want to do good for others. Go to church, serve others, and give tithes and offerings. Saved people serve people. But good works do not merit, do not merit you any rights to salvation. If you're trusting in your works or your outward actions to be good enough to obtain salvation, 
I hate to tell you that you are in trouble. If you don't change your direction, you are headed to hell. I know that's big, but that's the Bible. Because people who trust in their good works to be saved do not go to heaven. The only way you go to heaven after this earthly life is over is over is to trust in Christ and his blood alone. That's why this phrase, faith toward God, pistios epithion, is a foundational doctrine and is so very vital to your faith. In this one phrase, the matter is settled. Our faith is to, to project forward and lean entirely on God alone and on nothing else. I understand how sometimes people who come from a denominational background believe that their actions or their good works have something to do with whether or not they make it to heaven. They may believe they're okay with God because they have a church membership or because they regularly partake of communion or the Lord's Supper. But this misconception doesn't just run rampant in the denominational world. There are many who attend other kinds of Protestant and even charismatic churches who trust in a host of things besides Christ and his redemptive sacrifice for their salvation. Like the Jews of the past, they often wrongly believe that tradition or good deeds will somehow save them. Remember the earlier list of wrong uh, responses to the question, if you died today, why should God let you into heaven? All of those responses rely on the works of man. Yet you'll hear those types of answers from people throughout the church world. For this reason, many of these churches have church members sitting in the pews who are not born again. But the fact remains that none of those things will open the door to eternal life with the Lord. The only way you can go to heaven is to trust in Christ alone, not in any works of your own. What God may view as dead works in your life could actually be good works in that it is a good thing that you do those works. But if you're trusting in those good works to save you, you have misplaced your trust. That's why such works are dead because they cannot lead you to eternal life. Trusting in Christ's sacrificial death and his precious blood is the only guarantee that you will go to heaven. If you trust in anything but Christ's blood, you are in eternal trouble. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. How many of y'all thankful for the grace of God? Amen. <clears throat> we can never boast that we saved ourselves because we're so good in life. The only way we are saved is by trusting in the blood of Jesus alone. Let's rest in Jesus. So what does it look like when a person makes the decision to trust in Christ and only in Christ? Let me give you an illustration. When you sit in a chair, you don't wonder if that chair is going to hold you. Otherwise, you wouldn't sit in it. I mean, I've ever walked up to one before and it's like, is this sittable? You know what I'm saying? You sit down, placing all your weight on that chair. You are fully and completely resting on the chair, trusting in the chair to hold you up. The Bible says, cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. So this is essentially what it means to place all our trust on Christ and Christ alone. We are depending on him to hold us up. We say, it's not my works. It's not my activity. I can never do enough to be accepted. So rather than trusting myself and my own efforts... I'm going to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. 
I'm going to put all my faith on him. I'm going to rest with total and complete dependence on Jesus. And that is the faith that is required for salvation. Y'all already getting something? All right. Scripture foundation. As we study both the Old and New Testament, we find out why it is impossible for us to save ourselves. Let's discuss why it's so important that we come to this moment of trusting on Christ alone. And here's uh, eight scriptural points for our basis. Number one, you are born a sinner. How many of y'all believe that? Those of you who have toddlers. Hallelujah. Romans 5 and verse 12 says that sin entered the bloodstream of the human race through Adam. We see it right here. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So sin is not what you do, it's what you are. You see that? You sin because you are a sinner. A person sins and has a proclivity to sin because he or she was born a sinner with a sin nature. Number two is this. According to Psalm 58.3, we immediately go astray or begin sinning the moment we're born. The Bible says the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. So sin is not taught to us, it's in our nature. And because we are born in sin, we do sin, right? So here's an example of a fish. I used to teach this in youth. When a fish is hatched from its egg, no one has to stop and say, oh, we have to give them swimming lessons. It immediately swims because swimming is a part of its nature. Do you see that? So the principle applies to our children when they are babies. As cute as they are, aren't they cute? But it doesn't take long before we see the sin nature reveal itself. A baby might have a fit over not wanting to go to bed, throw food he or she doesn't want to eat. Right? George, I need to hear an amen from you because I'm sure you have it at your house. Or learn how to manipulate our emotions. They got them faces, y'all. They got them lips that stick out. They play you like a fiddle every time, grandparents. Isn't it interesting that we don't have to teach any of those kinds of behaviors to a baby? Why not? Because babies are born in sin. and They eventually come to an age of accountability when they are awakened to their needs to be saved. We don't have to teach a fish to swim. Fish swim by nature in the same way no one has to teach people how to sin because sin is their nature, right? According to Romans 3.23, all have sinned. This includes every person. No one is excluded. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what Romans 3.23 says. So as a sinner, you can't change yourself. You were born in sin, and sin is in your blood. Through discipline, you may modify your behavior, but changing your behavior does not give you a new nature. You still have a blood problem that can only be taken care of by the blood of Jesus. Right? Now we go to the fourth one here. Exodus 34, 7 says that every human being is guilty and God will not clear the guilty. Exodus 34, 7. Keeping keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. So this is a serious problem for the human race. Sinners cannot enter the presence of God. No one in sin goes to heaven, and every single person is a sinner. Therefore, God had to solve the problem, and he did it. Only he could have done it. Here's the fifth one. Jesus died to pay for the removal of your sin. That's what the Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the price and his blood was transferred to us. So we see it right here. But God commandeth his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, yet sinners, Christ died for you and me. Here's the sixth one. Through the blood of Christ, we have received forgiveness. That's what the Bible tells us in Ephesians 1, 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So Jesus' blood was the price that was paid. The only price that could be paid for our redemption and for our salvation. Here's the seventh one. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to take up residence within us and give us a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. We see it right here. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. There is no family member that can do that for you, only the Lord. In the new birth, God has put away the old man. We have been made new by the blood of Christ and have received the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes in, he gives us a brand new nature. We receive the nature of God. It is a transfusion that changes us. For the new nature he gives us has the power to do away with and override the power of the old nature. We see in Hebrews 6, 1 states the only, that only those who trust in Christ alone are saved and will go to heaven. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So this is the faith that is foundation to our Christian life, epitheon, faith that rests on Christ alone and not on anything else. People who trust in anything else besides Christ are likely not really saved. I stress again that faith in Christ means one thing only, faith in Christ. Man's misconception. People continue to try to figure out how to ensure a spot in the desired eternal destination. Right up to today, I've heard people who attend church say comments like this. And I hear comments like this when I'm shooting horses. I'm, go, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a member of the church. Or I'm going to go to heaven because I've, I've been going to the same church for 50 years. And then there's this popular one. I'm going to heaven because I've given in the offering plate. Going back to the example of the Egyptians that weighed the scales. Think about that. They basically believed that because they tried to be good, God would overlook what they did wrong. It's that same religious mindset that the ancient Egyptians possessed, only in a different form, and it rationalizes God will weigh the scales. People who believe this way think that God will calculate whether they did more good or bad in life. Then based on how the scale weighs, he will decide whether or not they will go to heaven. But a person who thinks like that is going to fail the test every single time. The truth is there are many people who have attended church most of their lives who have believed similarly and will have a big surprise when they die. 
They simply won't go to heaven if they trusted in something other than Christ alone. I recently watched a documentary on this, so this is kind of fresh on me. I was either going to go this direction or go with Kobe Bryant. But uh, Princess Diana died in a car accident August 31st, 1997, while fleeing paparazzi in Paris. Who remembers that? Y'all remember? There's a great documentary on it. I don't know if it's truthful, but it's pretty interesting. But her sudden death stunned the watching world because she seemed to be an icon with a flourishing young life. Millions of people watched her funeral service, and for a short time, uh, grieving people all over the world were gripped by the, the abrupt loss of a young woman who one day, early, one day earlier seemed to have the best life uh, has to offer laid out before her. I don't know whether or not Diana had a relationship with Christ, but I do think it made people think Princess Diana's sudden death really makes us think of how close eternity is to every person. I wonder where she is in eternity right now, heaven or hell, because her death brought the reality of eternity to people's minds. It was the same way when Kobe Bryant died. There were so many people. I mean, he, he had everything you could have. And it was just sudden. Nobody would have ever thought that he would have died in, in a helicopter crash like that. But and no one knows. No one knows. No one knows the day or the hour. But also nobody knows where he, where he holds an eternity. I don't know. We don't know those things. Countless number of good people have died and gone to hell because they didn't die in Christ. Are you beginning to see why it's so important that we have faith in Christ? It's... It is not about works. It's not about spiritual state people are in when they die. The scripture guarantee that if a the scripture guarantee that if a person dies in Christ, he will be in Christ for all eternity. But if a person dies in a lost spiritual state, he or she will spend eternity in hell, apart from God and in a not recovering lost state forever. We must understand that hell is real. I know so many pastors, that's another word that pastors are afraid to talk about hell. Can I tell you, the Bible is full of the word hell. It's full of sin. It's full of the word repent. Uh, to throw that word away is to throw the whole word, uh, the, the word away. And people go there. In fact, the Bible says that the majority of people go there. Jesus made a point of telling us the, that wide is the way of destruction and narrow is the way of life. And there are a few who find it. We see this in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter ye into, in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way. That leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The way is open for everyone. Y'all agree? But in life, the majority of people do not surrender to Christ. They don't rest their faith in, on him alone. As a result, they die deceived, saying things like, well, at least I was good to my parents and I was good to my neighbors. That's great, but every person has to have a change of nature. 18th century revivalist, I love this. Jonathan Edwards said this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Isn't that good? This is what Hebrews 6.1 reveals, that our salvation is because of our faith in Christ alone. Faith projecting toward Him. There's nothing else we can contribute to ensure eternal salvation. It is absolutely foundational that our salvation 
is only the result of our faith in Christ. When our faith is in Christ alone, we, we are secure. We are safe. We can rest in our salvation. Now, this is an important topic right here. Good works for the right reasons. Do you see why this understanding of faith toward God is so foundational? Faith toward God. All right, very good. I just needed one answer. It doesn't mean you're not supposed to do good works. You are, but for a different reason. And Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 shows us what a miracle our salvation is and how little it had to do with any kind of human effort or work. We see this right here. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice in this verse that there's no mention of doing any works to get, to get, to get saved. It says, in essence, you heard the gospel, and in a moment came when instantly you repented and believed. In the release of your faith, that's all, you just release of your, just a release of your faith, ignited that moment when the Holy Spirit came and sealed you. That supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the moment of salvation is absolutely right now and miraculous. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is a very fundamental passage for us to grasp when laying the foundation of our faith. For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of our own works. Our salvation by grace through faith became a living reality instantly. The very, the very moment we believed, that means we didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. We just received it. Ephesians 2.10 goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in him. The Greek word translated workmanship is the word pioma, which is the word for a masterpiece. He painted the Mona Lisa when he painted you, right? This tells us that when God released his power unto us at salvation, we were so completely transformed that we became like his masterpiece. So we're not doing good works to receive God's gift of salvation. We're doing good works because we did receive that gift. When we became new creations in Christ, creatures in Christ, we received a new nature, the very nature of God, and that new nature gives us the desire to do these good works. So this verse teaches that if we're saved, we will do good works, but if we don't, but we don't do those good works to obtain salvation. Those good works become the proof that we're saved. What do I mean by good works? Here are some examples. Being a good parent. I've already talked about some of these. Being a good spouse, serving others, using your talents to further the kingdom, releasing the gifts of the Spirit through your life, witnessing to others, faithfully bringing the tithes into the storehouse, sowing financial seed as offerings toward the work of the God's kingdom as the Holy Spirit leads, finding a place to serve and be a blessing in your local church. All of these good works are a fruit of salvation. They are not a way to obtain salvation. I just want, want to clarify that. If you do any of these things with the hope that they will help you get to heaven, they become dead works. Even though they are good works in themselves, your wrong motive behind doing these things make them dead. On the other hand, if you're doing these things because you have received salvation and your new nature wants to do good works to bless others, that's totally different. They are, they are then the fruit of a saved life. The heart of the reformed. Martin Luther is accredited with starting the Protestant Reformation. 
there were actually other Reformation leaders as well, but Luther is the one who is uh, most well known. He lived from 1483 to 1546, during a time when the church was living in a great deal of darkness. For centuries in the Roman Catholic Church, the general population had not had access to the Bible. The church leadership had decreed that only the priests could interpret the scriptures. And as a result, the people lived in spiritual ignorance. And that still kind of goes on today. Right? You can't just trust in me to study the word. You've got, it's in your hands as well. So church leaders taught the, uh, taught the people that they had to do certain things to merit forgiveness from sin or blessing from heaven. The people were required to do so many different things to supposedly merit heaven or get in there. It was truly a horrible state of affairs. They performed endless rituals and religious activity all the while in fear that if they didn't do more and more and more, they would not go to heaven. And even when people lay dying, they had no assurance that they were going to heaven because they they never knew whether or not they had done enough good works to undo their bad works to tip the scales. It was a form of spiritual slavery and it caused people to live in a perpetual spiritual bondage. The greatest tragedy of all is the fact that the majority of the people who belonged to the church of that time did not go to heaven. Despite the sincerity of their efforts because they weren't trusting in the redemptive work of Christ. They were trusting in their good works. Such as the number of times they climbed stairs or they kneeled in uh, um, penitence or, or the amount of money they paid the church required offerings to merit forgiveness. The people's faith was, for the most part, not rooted in Christ and Christ alone. This is no way, this is in, this in no way is intended to imply that there are not many faithful, sincere believers today in the Roman Catholic Church. I believe there's some spirit-filled ones out there because there are. And of course, in the centuries that followed the Reformation, new denominations were established that also includes some unsaved people who put their trust in other things besides the redemptive work of Christ to get them to heaven. But during that time leading up to the Reformation, the situation was dire because the terrible scriptural ignorance that had been caused by centuries of limited access to the scriptures for the general populace. This is why Martin Luther was so revolutionary in his time. As a priest, he saw the great injustice of this religious system, and he recognized the spiritual slavery it imposed on the people, not to mention the dire eternal consequences. Luther was so disgusted by it all and began studying the Bible with new eyes. He came to understand those six key words in the Bible, the just shall live by faith. The revelation hit Luther's heart that we are not saved by works. We are saved through faith and faith alone. That was a totally revolutionary idea at that time. Luther wrote down these five principles to reflect the true basis of salvation for every person. Only the word, only faith, only grace, only Christ, only glory to God. Isn't that good? That's why the movement birthed out of Luther's actions was called the Protestant Reformation. Those who joined with Luther were protesting the wrong teachings that one could be saved by good works. When you really understand this foundational doctrine, it makes you want to serve. You're so grateful that he, he gave you this free gift of salvation that you want to lend your supply to the work of his kingdom. 
You want to teach kids, be hospitable, witness to the lost, and be a blessing wherever you go, but your motivation is different. It's not so you can get salvation. It's because you are saved and you have a reason to serve. So we have seen without a doubt any... So we have seen without, a, without any room for doubt that resting in Christ alone is absolutely essential to our eternal status. And if you want to enjoy your Christian life, Hebrews 6.1 essentially tells us this. This is the starting point. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And as you rest in that, you can really begin to build your life in him. Jesus, Jesus Christ came to remove our questions and fears about our eternal destiny once and for all. We don't have to try to weigh the scales anymore because the blood of Christ has cleansed us and made us brand new creations in him. In that moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit gave us a new nature and we became part of God's family. Our faith is in Jesus and in him alone. You can see why this is such a foundational doctrine. So if someone were to ask you to explain your faith in God and every man's need for the, uh, for the sin-cleansing power of the blood of, blood of Jesus Christ, what would your answer? What would it be? A solid knowledge of this doctrine of faith toward God will prevent you from the bondage and torment of condemnation. It'll prevent you from doubt. It'll prevent you from self-effort in attempting to secure the favor of God. It's not what I've done, but it's everything that he's done for me. Amen? And next week, we're going to talk about the doctrine of baptisms. All right? Did y'all learn something tonight? Isn't this good? I think lots of times people do. They, I, I, um, I just think this is a trap that the, that the enemy really wants you to be in, that you're really not saved. How many of y'all have ever been beat up by the enemy before? You're really not saved. And you know that uh, every preacher's done it. If you were to die today, where would you go? And, and in all, I think that, and that's the reason I asked that question at, at an altar call. If you should die today, if heaven is, uh, if you should have a confidence. And that's what happens when we know the teachings of the word of God. When we know these things, we have a confidence in him that says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not what I've done. It's everything that he's done for me. I'm not saved of works, but I'm saved by grace. And you begin, you, you have a confidence that comes from that. And I'm telling you, when you get confidence in the word, and I've said this over and over before, you know how you get confidence? It's, it's, it comes from consistency. And when you have a consistency in the word, and you have consistency in, uh, of, of seeking his face, you have a consistency in prayer, I'm telling you, there will be a confidence that overwhelms you and comes over you. And so you don't have to, you know, there was times when I was a kid, that I needed to repent. And uh, there used to be this prophet, Mary Fran Varallo. She would, used to come to our church. And I'm not kidding you. I would sit out in the car and I would repent of every little thing I ever did. God, forgive me for saying that curse word on the line when I was playing football. You know, all those, all those different things. And uh, I, there was a part of me that was thinking to myself, I'm, I'm not going to heaven. I'm not going there. I needed to repent. Don't get me wrong. 
But I'm telling you, I believe those are things that, that will grip us and bring us down. And God wants to elevate you. Amen? God wants to elevate you. Praise the Lord. I'm not saying you shouldn't repent because I repented of those things. And she still called a few of them out on me. Whee! Mercy, mercy. Praise the Lord. All right. Well, y'all be back next week. We're going to talk about baptism. Lots of people just think about water baptism, but the Bible is full of, or not full of baptisms. It's full, it has three in there. We're going to talk about the, the blood. That's the first baptism. We're going to talk about the water. That's an important baptism. And the third one is the oil. Lots of people just teach the water, but there's three. That's why it says isms. Amen? Praise God. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, that uh, uh, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are made safe. And so, Lord, we've, we've ran to all other kinds of things in this world. We've, we've, we've uh, ran to the, to the appeasing of men. We've ran to the appeasing of other people. But, God, uh, you're what counts. And so, Lord, we run to you tonight. And we trust in you with all our heart and lean on our own understanding. Lord, I pray for these people tonight. I pray that as they go home that you keep your angels charged around about them. Keep them in all their ways that no evil befall them. No weapon formed against them shall prosper. Lord, bear them up in your hands lest they dash their foot against a stone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. We want to thank all of you who give to our ministries here at AOL Church. It's because of you that all of this is possible. You can give now by clicking the link below. And if you haven't already, subscribe and share this message. It helps us reach more people and share the gospel through you. Be sure to stay connected to us through our Church Center app, our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and follow us on social media like Facebook and Instagram. May the Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. Thanks again for listening. Go and make a difference today.